0: Human behavior kind of is what it is. That being said, in a time like this, there's clearly been a lot of disruption, and some of the behaviors are changing. Certainly, there will be long-term lasting effects.
1: Welcome to Food Marketing Nerds, your weekly serving of marketing advice and industry insights with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. What is up fellow nerds? Today we are sitting down with Rifle Hughes, strategy and innovation business partner at JPG Resources. Rifle has spent over 20 years helping companies build strong connections between brands and consumers. He's worked with a range of companies within the industry from startups to heavy hitters like Nestle, Hormel and Pepsi. Rifle and I discuss how COVID is influencing consumer behavior and how both CPG and restaurant brands should be adapting. In this episode, you'll hear what consumer behaviors are likely gonna have the most staying power in a post-pandemic world, how restaurants are bringing the on-premise experience to their customers' homes, what factors to consider before investing more into your e-commerce presence, and plenty, plenty more topics. So, without further ado. Rifle, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. Can you tell our listeners about your background and your path to your current role?
0: Yeah, sure. I kind of, like a number of your guests and yourself, I sort of have had a, a wandering path that landed me into the food and the CPG space. Started out in the technology side of the world and a lot of interesting things to do over there. I think ultimately what brought me to food and beverage is there was this sort of lack of real connection with consumers. And what I enjoy is really to be able to Play the game itself. You know, you can be in stores. You can you can witness consumers in real time. And there's something just sort of real and approachable about food and beverage. And so, I think I found myself, even without thinking about it, wandering that way because I just wanted to have something more tangible and, and human. And so, after some time there, I was out in California in the Bay Area and was managing director at a branding and packaging agency McLean Design. And a really great team works with small brands and big brands alike, probably most well-known as the creators of the uh, Monster Energy brand. But then we're a bunch of strategists. So we're always hatching new angles for brands, you know, more than just design for design's sake. And so we will work with brands, you know, big existing CPG, but then certainly sort of taking up arms alongside uh, the new the wild, the crazy, the uh, hopeful dream in the startup's eye and and build amazing brand experiences there. Through that, about a decade of time, ended up working on a few projects with the team at JPG Resources, which is a group founded by Jeff Grog, who ran uh, R&D for Kashi for a number of years as it was growing post the Kellogg's acquisition. I I was really sort of excited to see what was going on with that team. JPG is known for really getting involved in a lot of early stage brands and helping them build their business getting them up and off the ground, create the food, get it to market, help them make some of those first sales calls. And it seemed like the next obvious step from brand strategy and and packaging was to to go even deeper and partner more directly with brands. And so that's been a bit of my walk, really just constantly looking for deeper levels of partnership with clients, brands, whether they are these young, amazing startups, or there's a lot of great CPG brands that have been around for decades. or even longer. there's interesting things there and they have a lot of assets and uh, they can deploy them in different ways. and so each project, each client's a little bit different and that ultimately what' keeps me moving is I think I'd get a little bit bored if I was just living in one particular area, working on one particular thing for a long period of time. Kind of like a shark, I got to keep moving.
1: What do these typical relationships with JPG resources look like from the standpoint of how these brands partner with you? What, what are you guys looking to
0: accomplish? Yeah, I would say that most brands find their way to our door. Classically, the the origins of JPG is in R&D, so it's product development. Somebody has an idea for a food or beverage, and they're looking for experts and partners to help them see it manifest, build it, and deploy it, get it to market. And like I say, more often than not, that's where we show up on the radar for most brands and how many engagements with smaller companies tend to start out. However, we're a lot more strategic than that. I mean, we view ourselves as as true business partners, and so we're not necessarily signing up to create food if ultimately there's not a good business plan, you know, strategy, an idea that connects all the way to the consumer. So even though that often starts out as a, hey, can you make this XYZ product for us, we start asking a lot of questions. And ultimately, we want to make great food. And we also want to pair that with a really good business. Because if, if the business isn't there, there's no reason to make the food. So the questions that come from the feasibility side of, is this something that we could make, tend to shift into, is this something that we should make? Is this an opportunity or consumers there waiting and asking for something like this? And so we tend to find ourselves moving more upstream. And that's where I will often get involved is, is working at the overall business strategy. What is the opportunity in the market? And then ultimately, maybe there's even a, a pivot in the, in the idea behind the product that's to be created so that we can develop a super strong offering that uh, leads to a much stronger business in the end. I wouldn't say that's always the case with larger entities. We work with a number of Fortune 100 CPG groups say we're much more modularized in those cases. They're bringing us in when they have some sort of problem that they're trying to solve. And maybe it's on a, a quick timeline. And our team of 45 veterans can roll up their sleeves a little bit faster and uh, think a little bit more broadly than some of the large CPGs that are just weighed down by all of their mass. And uh, we can jump in and help them move a little quicker and, and solve those problems in a faster way. But it's it's a little bit more dance in this tiny little box, help us out. It, it's great work, uh, but it's less uh, cohesive than some of the younger brands and then everything in between.
1: And one of the things you mentioned was uh, earlier question, when you're looking at a project or a product, are consumers waiting for this type of product or is there a market for it? But what kind of data points do you look for and look at to really define if something is a viable option or if there's going to be demand for it?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in sort of a, a mixed approach. So I think one of the great things about younger brands is they're they're empowered by intuition. They just inherently know something. They can see it. Maybe it's something that's that's driven by a need that the founder has experienced themselves. And so it's the common statement of, you know what, there there should be something like this. And that's powerful. I, I think intuition is an amazing tool. We, as professionals, we need to learn to listen to that more and more because we can oftentimes get caught up in the, you know, let's, let's measure everything and ask a lot of questions and ask permission of the consumer. Sometimes, Sometimes it it just it's just your will, will and, and uh, uh, an, opportunity an opportunity that only a few people, people can people see and see and share. share. So, so I'm a big I'm a believer, believer in that, in but that, there's but balance, balance, right? right? So, so We'll do a lot of insight work, spending time with actual consumers if there is an identified target that the brand can see as part of their opportunity. You know, we have a number of tools where we'll spend actual time with these targets, ask them questions, understand what's going on in their lives, what their motivations are, what things are interesting to them, what sort of problems they're dealing with, or what upgrades in their life might they have. So. I think it's a continual conversation or interplay between this intuitive approach mixed with uh, insights that are getting at the core of you know what are consumers looking for and what's the role of, of the potential product that you're trying to create. We're pretty fortunate that we work with roughly, I'd say about 120 clients a year in all categories. So inherently, we also get to see a lot of opportunity, a lot of deal flow, a lot of different products in many different categories. And so Without necessarily doing formal primary research, there's just real-time experience and vision from commonality of playing in lots of categories that we can bring to bear as well. And sometimes there's crossover where, hey, there's an interesting trend going on in frozen breakfast. What would happen if that landed in beverage? Oh, yeah, there's an interesting crossover fit there. So less data points, but more just experiences and observing consumers and where they're going.
1: From that vantage point of seeing all these different types of clients and brands and getting to see the forest for the trees, are there any changes or evolutions in consumer behavior that are really sticking out to you at the moment?
0: (laughs) That's a question everybody's asking right now, right? I mean... I don't think you know I don't, I don't think any of us in our lifetimes have experienced something as impactful as what's going on with the current situation with covid so i think my standard answer as i've been speaking around this is that a lot of the existing behaviors are remaining in play i mean human behavior kind of is what it is at, at a norm and we will primarily stick to the way we're all <laughs> pre-programmed at some level to navigate this world that being said in a time like this there's clearly been a lot of disruption and and some of the behaviors are changing In some ways, I would say short-term, but certainly there will be long-term lasting effects. I guess the question is, is how much and to what level of scope or amplitude rather do these changes last? So a lot of the obvious ones is we're a society that's far more focused on sort of safety and security right now. We're less into adventure and exploration and uh, think about what buying trends are right now. People are, especially early on in the uh, pandemic, people were looking at things that you you know, trustworthy brands, shelf-stable stuff. You know, I don't know where the store is going to be around in a couple of weeks. So I'm stocking up on beans and toilet paper and, and things that I can put in my bunker and they'll be there for years upon years. And just making sure that me and my family are, are safe and secure for, for the long haul. I think that's a pretty dramatic endpoint on the spectrum. But I think that's going to be driving a lot of behavior for the foreseeable future, some level of safety, security, trust, and stability in a time where... We have less of that. The other side of that spectrum is clearly just look at any of the headlines over the last month or so, and a lot of people are feeling pretty cooped up and cabin fever, and sort of just rattling the cage to get out, sort of put that that safety line, uh, <laughs> you know, counteract that a little bit just to get out of the house and get out somewhere and, and see some change of scenery. So. I think those are the primary forces when I think about consumer behavior that are going to be a bit of a pendulum swing and back and forth. There's going to be this, I need stability for me and my family, combined with, you know, I need adventure. I need excitement. I need to shake it up. I need some distraction. And so what is this sort of economy going back and forth between those two factors that will ultimately drive behaviors at shelf or online? So if you look at those, those are governing factors. That's why like the trend, everybody jumped online. Well, it's because they couldn't get anything at the store. It's not like people said one day, oh, you know, that online thing sounds kind of fun. I think I'm going to start shopping on Amazon and Thrive just because I hear people talking about it. It's like, no, I can't get it. I can't get stuff at the store. So it's reactionary. I guess the question we're all asking ourselves is now that people have been introduced to something like that, you know, the convenience of shopping online and, and stuff showing up at your store, like we're all hyper addicted to, from Amazon and others, is what consumers that weren't really playing in that type of product, food, beverage, what have you, acquisition, how much are they going to keep doing that versus going to their local retailer or super center or big box?
1: With the uncertainty of staying power of some of these trends that move to e-commerce due to lack of a a better option in some cases, is it worth companies who haven't established a solid base for an e-commerce presence or third-party delivery to start investing in that?
0: Yeah, I, I think in some ways, it's, it's a bit of a wake up call where everyone has to at some point, you know, most brands saw it as, hey, you know, we don't really need to do that. We're, we're doing pretty fine over here in the traditional bricks and mortar setup, and they were able to get away with that for a long time. I would say that most brands are waking up to say we have to be in there in some form or some fashion. And maybe this pandemic is a good bit of a wake-up call to get us on sort of the next generation of what online retailing looks like. I'd say it's not a one-size-fits-all, certainly, that uh, there are brands that are going to make or or products or segments that make more sense there versus those that don't. You know, anything that's perishable is still a little bit tough. Just the nature of getting low-shelf life items, refrigerated, frozen. You can't put those things in warehouses or trucking's difficult and expensive and the sort of longer supply chains that work for buying a pack of LED light bulbs or something doesn't work when you're trying to get meat shipped to your house. And so there's definitely a breakdown where there's natural fits based on the viability of the product itself. I think one of the cautionary tales is every brand needs to consider its role online. It's not just a, hey, let everybody's going online now. Let's plug it in and just set up a Shopify store and let's play with this Amazon thing and we're done. You have to go back to what is your overall business strategy, what's unique about your brand, and consider the fit of particular channels. And I think it's a time to be especially very strategic. You don't want to just be running off everywhere because it's easy to do that online. It's easy to just turn up a bunch of stores you know, click a bunch of boxes and say, all right, well, you can can get us at all these different places. Ultimately, you have to support them all. And you have to make sure that you are doing your part to get consumers to those stores or even even your own site. There's positioning and channel fit just like there are in in a traditional space. You know, if you've got some sort of fitness-oriented, better-for-you product, you know, there's there's obvious fits in the past, like going to a, a GNC or a vitamin shop or local gym and things like that, you have to reconsider what the position of your brand and your products are and examine those online outlets in the same similar way. Do you go to Amazon just because it's where everybody goes? Sure. But then you need to consider the the next level of retailers and outlets online to think, where are my consumers going? What's the obvious fit? Can I get some data that backs that up? And then let's make some choices about where we place our products rather than just taking this blanket approach to going everywhere and turning up all these outlets that we can.
1: Do you find yourself more traditionally in the camp of encouraging a direct to consumer channel Like through a Shopify site, for example, or what factors would weigh into is this the right fit for your brand?
0: I would say I I try to keep an open mind on most everything. I find myself being a little bit biased in the go back to the consumer behavior standpoint. It's a little bit difficult for me to sign on to say, if you look in the average pantry, there's probably, let's say, 60 to 80 brands that most consumers consume and between the pantry and the fridge or something. Are we really going to go out to 60 or 80 different sites on a weekly, monthly? basis and do individual transactions when they all have different delivery experiences, payment terms. Most people can't even maintain a a password system. (laughs) <laughs> in a safe secure way. So, I think it's a stretch. Is it easy to do and, you know, is it fairly simple to set up a Shopify site and support it? Yeah, it's it's one of the more approachable things. You have great control over the presentation of your product. No competitors are there on your website. So, it's certainly something that's doable and most brands should probably have in some form or function. I think it's a struggle to say that it's really going to drive business for most brands, I think, in the same way that you, know, you just look at the traditional world. There's a reason why we have consolidated around a small set of retailer styles. So you go to a grocery store for your food and you go to your sporting goods store for your sporting goods and so forth. You know, I'm not going to the Titleist store and the Coleman store and the you know Heinz Bean store we like going to single places. It's tough for me. And I'm, again, I'm trying to keep an open mind around it. And I, we do recommend that brands often have that single DTC site, but it really needs to be a, a key part of your brand to make a lot of sense. One of the successful brands that we built at McLean about six years ago was a trifecta nutrition, sort of a fitness-oriented meal delivery, sort of in the paleo space, started by the guy by the name of Greg Connolly. Tremendous brand that just shot off with a rocket. It was even surprised us that, that it happens so well. And it's, it's purely DCC. He may have expanded it some since then, but it was a very identifiable consumer segment. They were searching for particular products. There were not a whole lot of solutions that would solve the need. And so my armchair quarterbacking, not really knowing the reasons, but If you have a scenario like that, I I think you can build a successful business because you're able to target those consumers, you're able to advertise to them really well online. You're going to have influencers that can come along and uh, recommend the product's themselves and you know the product and the brand find its way into social media really strongly. So it builds a little bit of a following and begins to uh, build momentum on its own. So I think if you've got a scenario like that, it can make a lot of sense. If, if you're something that's a little more broad based, probably more focus onto those retailers versus having your own individual site and thinking that throngs of people are going to show up there
1: for a company or a brand that doesn't lend itself as well to dtc channels do you have a take on how the promotion of those products through digital mediums like influencers like you said for trifecta and social how that comes into the mix
0: A little bit. Admittedly, it's not a key area of my knowledge base, so I'm more of a dabbler than a true uh, expert. But I think most of it comes back to ensuring that you have a good sense of your position and what your brand stands for. And that, spoiler, that's sort of my answer for everything. It's really have a good sense of who you are as a brand, what you offer, what's unique about you versus all the other competitors out there. And then from there, you move out and make decisions. And so when you're looking at social media, when you're looking at influencers, when when you're looking at driving trial in a time when it's pretty limited, you have to start with what's what's a good fit with the brand. So I think the good thing is, is that an influencer community has primarily been built around alignment on particular consumer lifestyles, demographics, or psychographics. So it's at its nature, it's already built to say, hey, you have a brand that stands for being a rugged outdoorsman. Well, you know, there's some people out there that are really driving communities and have a lot of followers and have a, have an amazing voice and so if that's your brand and you can find the right people that speak to your community and I think there's also an important nature of fit. I saw some great speakers on on how to write, find the right influencers rather than just, you know, you can go to an agency and engage six or seven different people. Ultimately, it's got to be genuine. And so finding ones that really get you as a founder, get your brand, and it's not just a promotional thing, they can almost become more of a, an expression of the brand because that's the danger too, is these influencers can be, you know, they're expressing their own opinions and maybe they're expressing something in a way that isn't necessarily aligned up With what you believe in. And uh, now's a time where people are rightfully so really sensitive to a lot of things. And so you got to be pretty careful with who you're uh, partnering up with to promote who you are.
1: Coca Cola's chief economist was going through the split between consumer spending on grocery versus restaurant. And usually the prices and aggregate revenues fluctuate in tandem and only in the last. Three to four years have those diverged to where grocery was disproportionately more affordable and so people were flocking more to grocery prior to COVID, obviously. But um, I thought that was interesting and you've got so many different adapting business models in the restaurant industry and rise of third-party apps that are changing the restaurant industry as we know it.
0: We've got a couple of people that are that are deep into food service on a sort of sales strategist side, and we're monitoring it almost daily because it's it's changing so fast. We're trying to determine where things are going so that you know we've got clients that play in that space. And we also want to continue to grow our business around food service. But when the uh, landscape is moving moment by moment, it's, it's hard to chart a path.
1: Have you seen any research or trend predictions on what kind of staying power the current shift to whether it's delivery or ordering online how that could impact beyond this
0: pandemic era we have been monitoring and, and speaking around that some. So I would say we're we're seeing data that's showing that any food service operator that has a delivery previously as part of its component is having a massive amount of higher chance of success and, and staying power during and post-pandemic than the ones that are scrambling to add on some sort of delivery component. Yeah, you've got all the delivery services out there. I think what's what's key, though, is you have to think about the traditional food food service experience. It's not just the food. It's the premise. It's the service. It's, you know, you're going there, you're making the choice not to cook or consume something at home and you're you're going out. You know, it's the it's Friday night. It's our night to splurge. We're going to dinner, so you can't just replace that by throwing some hot food and some styrofoam containers and throwing it in uh, Uber Eats or Grubhub or something and <laughs> and getting it home. So I think where we're seeing, especially some of the in- independents win, is they're reconsidering how can we help transport. That on-premise experience, so that you can succeed at home, and so that looks like we're seeing restaurants where the chef is actually getting on a Zoom call <laughs> with, with patrons uh, when they pick up their food, and they get home, and they'll do a little instruction. You know, she'll walk them through on, hey, this is how you do your plating, and this is kind of the order, and almost, almost like a you know a price fixed sort of approach where the it's a curated meal or something along those lines. Clearly, that's high touch. That doesn't work for almost most uh, restaurants or food service operators. But I would say it's indicative of the type of thinking that has to happen. I think we're going to find a fairly interesting divide where, yes, all the drive-through fast food stuff, look, they're set, they're rocking and rolling. That's, that's going to keep up what it is, but we're going to miss out on this, the sort of more entertainment-oriented side of food service that, you know, we we all desperately need right now. We're, we're looking for distraction and adventure, and that's one of the places where we could go get it, especially in a time where we can't travel on vacations and spend a lot of money on other stuff. Food is a great accessible thing, and it's just a shame that if restaurants are struggling in all of this, so transporting that experience home, I think, is, is, a, is a big piece, big piece of consideration. Where we're we're seeing some restaurants already doing really well. I think building towards a delivery model, or maybe we're seeing a lot of conversation around the rise of ghost kitchens. They've been around for quite some time, but I mean, this is a model that is really well suited for. Every This environment and going forward. Quick explanation for those that may not be aware Ghost Kitchen is essentially like a commercial facility. Its sole purpose is to do delivery oriented meals. So, you know, no place to go. You can't, there's not even a counter you can walk up and purchase anything. It's just they're creating food, handing it over to delivery drivers, whether their own or third parties. I think we're going to see a lot more of that build up over time.
1: Yeah, I was uh, listening to the founder of Grubhub talk through. There are multiple ghost kitchens where it's basically a, a warehouse. He was talking about a few in Brooklyn that they had five to six restaurant brands and really one kitchen and one warehouse that the only place that they were available for order was through Grubhub. So they're just testing restaurant concepts and uh, pretty much deciding what they're going to roll out based on demand and what these what the menu is. It's a past example, but just as relevant as ever.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting... Thing to consider when anecdotally, it's fairly well known that restaurants and food service business are pretty razor-thin margins. It takes a lot of time and effort. Again, go back to my statement about the environment. If you have sort of a higher experience on premise, uh, you know, a restaurant where you're gonna go out with some friends or or with your spouse or date nighter, there's a lot that goes into even the design of the space and how they're going to conduct their service. And that model, you're right, it, it gets tough to say to try new things where you're kind of set, you know, you build this cool modern Asian experience. (laughs) <laughs> and you're building food up against that experience. And then maybe some trends change or people go a different direction. And even chefs are creative and they want to try some new cuisine. Well, you kind of set your stuck based on your environment. Well, the ghost kitchen approach is, is something where they can chase trends a lot faster. Seasonality, it's, it's just not fixed in space. It's more of the lab where really talented chefs can play and create new and exciting food to get out into, uh, get it into our hands when we're sort of looking for new options besides being at home. I mentioned at home, I mean, I think as as people return to the office in different ways too, that getting food into the workforce or on the go is is just as important as well.
1: So you mentioned some examples of independence that are more high touch from the chef getting on a Zoom call to talk with the customers. Are there any examples that are more of an intermediary where you're trying to transport that in-restaurant experience or guest experience and ambiance where it's maybe not a one-to-one conversation?
0: Yeah, sort of the next order of magnitude down is how the food's packaged. There's a little bit more consideration going into how different meals are placed into various containers and uh, you know bagged up to go but the sort of easier approachable than that one to one zoom call is i've seen examples of cards and guides sort of same way on maybe instead of the burger being pre assembled the the patties over here the bread's over here and so you can put it all together and maybe they have a guide on how to do that or interesting notes around what you're getting to give a little bit more context and uh, background rather than just, hey, here's the thing you ordered. We're seeing lots of add-ins. <laughs> Interesting point of trial for small CPG brands. I think this is an area where you can get packaged good products in front of consumers more readily. You probably need to find the right partners. But if there's a good fit between a packaged good item, we're, we're seeing where restaurants are partnering with those from the retail side of the world to in- include their products as sort of little... Maybe it's the new version of the, the Happy Meal toy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a food... I'm not speaking to toys specifically, but it's a food you might want to try. So if you're ordering a certain type of meal and there's a shelf-stable item that kind of fits that same mindset, we're seeing some of those things end up in that to-go experience.
1: I'm uh, sure you're familiar with GoPuff or v- similar services. Not familiar with that one, no. It's uh, it's worth looking into. It's it's basically just convenience store delivery app or 7-Eleven now is a direct competitor. They are more or less... Aimed at lazy young people like me, and uh, (laughs) they will include different products in there, different free, whether it's uh, the newest Reese's product, it's an awesome plus up and makes the consumer happy and it's also great exposure. So it's really interesting to hear that that is translated in some circumstances for restaurants and
0: CPG. Yeah, I think we're, we're seeing similar approaches all over the place. Just finding ways to get your product in front of consumers when they're engaging on other transactions is fairly straightforward. It's been done for decades, but kind of finding its way around again in in all of this. So, you know, whether it is some other e-com order that you can get your samples into or some of the sampling boxes, I mean, the rise of sampling boxes coming back again is is an interesting one. But yeah, like what you're describing with sort of the the latest flavor innovation being dropped into some other order, you know, it's a great way. And like you say, it's it's a simple thing that as a consumer, we get that little extra, you know, it, it, it can turn around the whole experience. Like, oh man, look at this. They put this little thing in there for me. That's that's so cool. That's exciting. And you have the opportunity to try something out that maybe you wouldn't put your money down to give it a go in the past, but then you find something you really love.
1: This has been a really interesting conversation. We'll have to have you back on the podcast here in the near future. I, there's plenty of things that we didn't get to cover that I would love to. We have a few wrap-up questions that we ask each for our guests. Are there any books that come to mind that have influenced how you think about business or
0: strategy? What's funny is there are a few and they're a little non sequitur, I would say. So I, I was on a kick and still am over the last couple of years of uh, reading biographies. Never really been into fiction, but there's some lessons out of life that just speak to me about these people that are of interest and go off and do interesting things. So there was Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, biography that I'd read at one point in time, and just the idea of summiting Everest. There's a lot of analogies that I bring into approaching brand strategy, you know, sort of like this journey that you're on. And especially in consulting, I've related as as terms of being like a Sherpa and we're there to guide and ultimately make sure that our clients succeed in the summit. And sometimes, you know, your job is also to turn them around before they get there because you know that if they stay on the journey, they're, they're not going to survive. So
1: last question here, based on what you know now what advice would you give yourself as you were just starting your career
0: oh yeah um (laughs) get into get into food center I mean absolutely that's that's and brands especially you think you have a vision of when you're starting out and your career is is more often a journey and I don't regret the twists and turns and the the failures along the way those are all great learning lessons but uh, if I had known back then that you know there was a thing called brand strategy and there was this world of playing out the game of business at shelf with especially with packaged goods should have gone there a lot sooner (laughs) no one no one one came and spoke about this and said hey you know if you have a mind style like this do we have a career for you I would, would have found myself over here so much sooner. It's, just, it's great. I love working with brands of all sizes. They're all interesting and they have, you know, they're fascinating in each individual way and it's, it's a whole lot better than trying to grind it out in the more traditional business world where I started.
1: Awesome, so where can our listeners find out more about you and JPG Resources?
0: Yeah, it's hard to find me. I've got a really common name, but uh, <laughs> if you want to look for me on on LinkedIn, you can you can see some background about me there jpg resources uh you can find us at jpgresources.com. we're also on on linkedin and you know i'll be at some point hanging out around at all the the typical shows and uh, other industry events if they ever happen again <laughs> i think we're all missing the opportunity to network but yeah i'd love to connect up with anybody in person that if we ever had the opportunity someday
1: awesome rifle right, we'll really enjoyed our conversation and thanks so much for coming on thanks alex And that is going to wrap up today's episode with Rifle. If you're enjoying the podcast or getting value from it in any way, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us out. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I will catch you, nerds, next week. Food Marketing Nerds is a production of Blue Bear Creative. For interview transcripts and other downloadable resources, head to
0: foodmarketingnerds.com.